All right, if you are a first-time guest, my name is Aaron. Uh, so glad you guys were able to join us today. Uh, today, I want to do things just a little differently. I want to start us off with prayer, so if you would, please uh, join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, your scriptures say that when uh, Jesus breathed his last on the cross, that the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple was, was rent in two from top to bottom, signifying that your presence came out to us because of Christ, but also to welcome us into your presence. And so God, today we approach your throne of grace with confidence, not because of anything we've done to deserve to kneel before your throne. We, we come because of what Jesus did for us through the cross. And so Lord, I pray that as we come before you now, through your scriptures, sitting here before you, that you would be our teacher. You would open our ears and our hearts to what you want to say. Some of us, we're, we're here because this is just what we do every week. It's, it's a duty. Some of us are here because we received an invitation and, and we're just kind of curious about this church. Some of us are here because we're hurting and we need you and we're hoping that we'll hear something from, uh, from you. And, and so God, it is utterly ridiculous to think that I as one person am able to speak to so many various needs, but I believe you can. And so Lord, would you speak to each heart, to each mind, letting them hear your invitation to come to them, that your presence has come to them, but the invitation for them to come to you and to kneel before your throne of grace with confidence. And it's in the precious name of Jesus we pray and ask for this. Amen. Well, how many of you have heard the phrase, history repeats itself? Okay, yeah, I suspected most hands would go up. Uh, if, if for some reason this is new to you, uh, historians like to point out how history seems to work in patterns. Uh, they, they see it in wars, they see it in economics, they see it in pandemics, uh, they, they kind of see it all over the place. For instance, the stock market crash back in 2008, which led to about a two-year, uh, they called it the Great Recession, that mirrored what happened back in 1929. There was this day called Black Thursday, stock market crashed, and that led to the Great Depression of the 1930s. Other historians like to point out that Hitler's invasion of uh, Russia in World War II, that it looked a lot like the invasion of Napoleon 100 years prior into Russia. They, they both initiated about the same time, and they both utterly failed. Apparently, you don't invade Russia in the winter. But history repeats itself. I, I, I mean, we, we, I just saw this yesterday. I woke up to the news that Hamas had invaded Israel. And there's now all-out war taking place. And one of the tweets I saw on Twitter, well, the platform formerly known as Twitter, now called X, still a weird name, uh, I saw someone post, hey, doesn't this remind you of, and they named some event that I wasn't familiar with, but this was their way of saying history repeats itself. But I don't think history just repeats itself on a global level. I, I think history sometimes repeats itself on a personal level. Like, any of you ever had a friend who she just seems to keep getting in the same kind of relationship where the guys just don't treat her well, they're disrespectful, and it just seems over and over and over history is repeating itself. Or maybe you have another friend who is having some health issues and the doctors have said you need to cut out this type of food or these kind of beverages and yet every time he goes to the grocery store those just seem to end up in his cart. History keeps repeating itself. Or, or even just look at kids. 
Yeah, the, the little kid should know from history that if he keeps annoying his big sister or brother, he's going to get walloped and go crying to mom. And yet he just continues to pester until he gets walloped and goes crying to mom. History repeats itself. Today we're going to be in the scriptures and we're going to see uh, Luke, the author of Acts, share with us a story of history repeating itself. But as we compare the two stories, we're going to notice one difference. And I think for some of you today that that one difference is going to make all the difference in helping you in your personal history to see a stop to some things or to at least receive some encouragement of what you need to do as maybe you're tired of history repeating itself in your life. So to help you begin to see it, I invite you to open up your Bible to Acts chapter 9. Acts 9. If you uh, didn't bring a Bible today, uh, we will be putting the scripture up on the screen. Uh, We just think your learning is going to go a lot deeper if you have your own Bible. So either download a Bible to your phone and use that or uh, uh, bring a paper Bible or stop by our resource table and take one of the Bibles that we have there. That would be our gift to you. And you can uh, then use that any and every day of the week. As you're turning to Acts chapter 9, uh, let me just kind of let you know where we're at. We started studying the book of Acts back in February. Uh, We've taken a couple of breaks this summer. We had about a two-month break. Well, in September, when we came back to Acts, we were ready for chapter 8. And what we saw in 8 and the first half of chapter 9 was three different men changed by the gospel. And so we did the sub-series within Acts that we just called Changed. The third man we saw changed was a man by the name of Saul. When we met Saul, he was just a very, very zealous Jew rising the ranks within Judaism and he thought that this whole crazy idea of these Jewish people claiming that Jesus was the, the long-prophesied Messiah, that this was heresy, it's wrong, they're claiming he rose from the dead, the Messiah's not going to die, and no one rises from the dead. And so he thought, we've got to thwart this, we've got to stop it. And so he was going about trying to arrest anyone who's proclaiming Jesus was the Messiah, have them thrown in prison, put them on trial, and if need be, kill them. And so we see him go to Damascus, with letters giving him permission to arrest any Jesus followers he finds and to haul them back to Jerusalem and put them on trial. It's just that on the way there, he met Jesus. In a vision, Jesus appears to him, this blinding bright light, and Jesus is like, why are you persecuting me? And he suddenly realizes he's wrong. There really was this man, Jesus, who really did die on a cross, but really did rise again from the dead, and he really was the son of God. He was the Messiah. Saul's life was just devastated. He was so wrong. And yet at the same time, he suddenly realizes what he's supposed to do. And so when he gets to Damascus, instead of just simply going around trying to arrest Jesus followers, he ends up going into the public square and defends the Jesus followers saying that, well, what they're saying is actually true. Jesus really did rise from the dead and he is the Messiah. Well, my original plan with Saul's story was for us to keep going because there's a couple more, like two, three more paragraphs about what occurs for Saul. However, it just was too much to fit into that sermon two weeks ago. And so if we had kept reading, we would have seen what happened is after he defends the Christian faith there in Damascus, it offends some of the Jewish leaders. It frustrates them. I mean, this guy was supposed to be coming to help them arrest these Jesus followers, and now he's out there defending them. It's like he switched teams. So because of his betrayal, they decide they got to get rid of this guy. And they put together a plot to kill him. Well, thankfully, the plot gets discovered. And so the the Jesus followers that were there in Damascus decide to help him out. And so there's kind of this exciting little story where they lower him in a basket out of a window outside the wall of the city. And he escapes in the night and works his way back to Jerusalem. 
But again, if we'd kept reading, we would discover that being in Jerusalem wasn't that much better. That, that when he got to Jerusalem, the, the followers of Jesus, the few that had remained, remember there was a persecution going on and a number of the Christians fled for their lives. But those that were still in Jerusalem, he tries to make contact and they're scared. I mean, it sounds like a great espionage movie. You know, he supposedly joins your side, gets in and on the inside, and then he ruins everything. And so they're staying back. I mean, this was the guy that was approving the death of their friend Stephen. And now he supposedly believes the same thing Stephen died for? But a guy by the name of Barnabas, who we met at the end of chapter 4, finds Saul, comes alongside of him, hears his story, and brings him before the apostles. And as he comes before the apostles, they hear his story, and they realize this is our brother in Christ. They accept him, and then he has now the encouragement to go out into the public square and begin to defend this kind of continuation of Judaism, this new faith explaining how Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. But you can imagine how Saul's friends felt. I mean, they knew Saul beforehand. I mean, he, he was on their team. He's, he's going to go to Damascus and arrest these Jesus followers. And yet, he now has betrayed us at the deepest of levels. And so they put together the same exact plot that the people in Damascus did. We've got to get rid of him. We've got to kill him. Again, the plot gets discovered. This time, though, rather than luring him in a basket, they put him on a ship. And they send him off back home to Tarsus. And that's where Saul's story ends. At least for four chapters. It, where Saul's story ends in chapter 9, and where we see him reappear in chapter 13... Most scholars say that's a 14-year gap. In other words, Saul went away for a 14-year internship. God was using that time there to prepare him for the missionary journeys that, that are basically from uh, Acts 13 on, we see uh, Saul go on. So he's put away for a little while. God's going to be working on him. And so Luke's kind of like, well, Saul's story's done for a bit, so let's go catch up with Peter. So that's where we're going to be at today. Let's uh, open up our Bibles to uh, chapter 9, and we're going to start at verse 32. Now, as Peter went here and there among them all, so he, he's traveling around the, the region, there he, found a, uh, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. Our uh, author, Luke, oh, I forgot my water bottle. I, do you mind running it up to me? Thank you. Uh, Luke, before he uh, traveled with Paul, you're going to see him enter in the story in Acts uh, later. He ends up traveling around and, and, and does ministry. Before he, he did all that, before he wrote the book of, of Luke, you know, the gospel that bears his name and, and here the book of Acts, he was a physician. He was a doctor. Good doctors, they give attention to detail. And we see that so much, both in, in the, the gospel of Luke and here in the book of Acts. He gives so much detail. Just in these four little verses, he is thrown in all sorts of details. He doesn't just say that Peter went to a small village. He tells us he went to Lydda. This is the only place in all of the scripture where the small little town of Lydda is mentioned. Then he doesn't just say that Peter healed a, a man. No, he, he names the man Aeneas. 
And he doesn't just say that he, he healed him because he was paralyzed. No, he lets us know he was bedridden for eight years. And not only do we see him healed, we then begin to see that all of the people in Lydda and Sharon, Sharon would be the region. So it'd be kind of like, hey, if something happened in Waverly, it impacted Bremer County or the Cedar Valley. Right? It, the, basically, a revival has happened and the news has begun to spread. Luke, though, is not just being a good historian, giving us these details that could go back and be corroborated. He's setting up the next story. There's something significant that is going to happen, but he needs us to see where Peter is at and what takes place so that we understand the story. We need to know that Peter happens to be in Lydda because that's only three hours away from the, where the next story takes place. He wants us to see that Peter heals Aeneas because that would be proof, verification of the, the story that he's telling people of the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus. He wants us to see that people are putting their faith in Jesus, that the revival is happening, and that word is spreading because that means some of the word has gotten to the next town, to Joppa. And that's where our story continues. So pick it up in verse 36. Now, there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died. And when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Well, since Lida was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went with them. All right, so Dr. Luke, uh, Dr. Detail, has thrown in yet another detail. He's introduced us to another character. Right, the book of Acts is filled with so many names. This next person is Tabitha. We, we learned that Tabitha was a wonderful woman, very, very caring. Uh, if you were familiar with the scriptures and familiar with Proverbs 31, I mean, she was the prototype. She was an amazing woman. We also learned she was also known by the name Dorcas. And you're thinking, if my parents named me Dorcas, I would change it too. Right? Tabitha was the Aramaic and Hebrew word for gazelle. Well, a gazelle in the Greek language was Dorcas. So it just depended on which language you're speaking based on what you would call her. Kind of like what we learned two weeks ago with Saul. Saul didn't suddenly as became a Christian and become Paul. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was just the Greek version of the same name. But then we learned that Tabitha got ill and died. Now someone, as they're preparing her body, gets this crazy idea. What if Peter who is helping this revival happen in the small little village of Lydda, what if he came? Because we've been hearing that back in Jerusalem, God's been using him to perform some miracles. Maybe he could come. Now, time was of the essence. See, Luke needed us to see that, that, that uh, Peter's only three hours away. Because in our day and age, someone dies, we have the means to be able to, to preserve the corpse. So that the family has time to prepare for a funeral, for people to come in in case you're going to do an open casket. Or if a crime was committed, time for, for like evidence to be discovered through an autopsy. But back then, they didn't have those means. So when a person died, they usually would wash the body. So in this case, because it was a female, it would just be women who were washing the body. They would then use these spices to prepare the body. And then within hours, they have to bury the body. Well, as they're washing it, I can't help but think, but maybe one of these women thinks, this was such a wonderful woman. I, I just get the sense that 
maybe her time here isn't done. And, and if God could raise Jesus from the dead, and if a couple of the other resurrections I've heard about, if, if this could happen, maybe. So two guys from the church there, hoof it, the three hours, well, a three-hour walk, they probably ran. And, and they get there, and they're huffing, and they're puffing, and they find Peter, and they're like, you've got to come. And so they hike the three hours back, and this is what takes place. Pick it back up in uh, verse 39 of the second phrase. And when he, Peter, arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then, calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. Now I realize that if you are new to the Bible, what I just read sounds like a fictional story straight out of like the Harry Potter world. Like a person came back to life, okay, that, that's got to be made up. Or maybe she really wasn't dead, maybe she's like in a coma or, or something. I, I I can understand your skepticism. I, I just want you to realize that the entire Christian faith is based upon the miracle of a resurrection. Without the resurrection of Christ, Christianity does not exist. And, and so that's why most Christians, as they read this, they don't balk at it. Because if Dr. Detail puts in so many other details that have been verified by archaeology, then I think he's also going to be right about this. He's not going to go and make stuff up. He doesn't need to make stuff up. And so this resurrection really happened. But I don't think Luke is just simply trying to tell us what really actually took place. I think he's also showing us how history repeats itself. He is alluding to another story. That story is found in Mark chapter 5. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, we're going to come back here to Acts. But if you are, I encourage you, flip back to Mark chapter 5. Mark 5. Let me set the stage for what we're going to see in Mark 5. Uh, Jesus is at the Sea of Galilee and he's preaching a cr to a crowd. While he's preaching, uh, a synagogue leader by the name of Jairus comes up to him and says, Master, teacher, my little girl's dying. She's 12 years old. W would you come and heal her? Jesus is like, yeah, of course. So he and his disciples get up and the crowd kind of overhears what's taking place. And they're thinking, oh, are, are we going to get to see a miracle? So the crowd starts following along. So they're making their way to, to Jairus' home when suddenly Jesus stops everyone and goes, whoa, 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 wait, what just happened? Power just went out of me. And, and everyone's like, uh, Jesus, uh, everyone's touching you. What do you mean? It's like, no, some, someone touched me and, and they're healed. And this woman who'd been bleeding internally for 12 years comes forward and admits what she's done. Well, as Jesus is having this conversation with her, suddenly some men from Jairus' home come up and they just quietly say, hey, uh, Jairus, uh, don't, don't bother the master anymore. Uh, your little girl died. Jesus senses what is going on. And he looks right at Jairus and he says, do not fear, only believe. So they begin to make their way and this takes place. Mark 5, start in verse 37. And he, Jesus, allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, 
Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. All right, so now you start seeing, oh, history has repeated itself. You, you can kind of see some of the parallels. The, we, we see that in both stories, it's, it's a, a female who has died. In one case, a 12-year-old girl, and the other, a, a woman a little bit older. In, in both cases, we see that they were very loved. There's people weeping over their passing. In both stories, we see the one who's going to be doing the healing ask everyone else to, to leave. And, and then we hear them say very similar things. Jesus speaks in Aramaic to the girl and says, Talitha kumi, means little girl, wake up, arise. Well, remember, Dorcas has an Aramaic name, Tabitha. And so most likely, Peter looks at her and says, Tabitha kumi, Tabitha, arise, wake up. If you think about these parallels, it kind of makes sense. Because back in Mark chapter 5, who did Jesus let in? The mom and the dad, James and John, the brothers, and Peter. So I can't help but wonder that when Peter shows up in Joppa, he's taken to that upper room, he hears the weeping, he sees the, how loved they are, he hears everyone mourning, and he sees the body laying there. He has a flashback, and he remembers what took place when they walked in and saw that dead little 12-year-old girl. And now he's starting to have a sense, I think God brought me here to raise her, that God wants to do the same thing. And so that's why we see him do some of the exact same things. Well, Jesus kind of kicked everyone else out, so I'm just going to ask everyone to leave. Uh, Jesus said, Talitha kumi, I'll say Tabitha kumi. Uh, Jesus took her by the hand, I'll, I'll take her by the hand. He's He's like, well, I'm supposed to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. And I think God's brought me here to do what Jesus did. So I'll do it. But there's one big difference. If your Bible's still open there to Acts 9, look at verse 40. Verse 40 says, but Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed. Nowhere in Mark 5 do we see Jesus kneel. Nowhere in Mark 5 do we hear Jesus pray. Now, other places in Scripture we see Jesus kneel. Other places in Scripture we hear him pray. But when he walks into that little room, we don't even see Jesus like take a second to gather himself. He, the Son of God, who has authority over hell and death, walks up and says, hey, little girl, wake up. Time for breakfast. You got a whole life to live. Come on, arise. Peter, on the other hand, realizes I am not the son of God. I do not have authority over life and death. I have zero power within me to perform this sort of a miracle. Only God can do this. And so he stops, he kneels, and he prays. I can't help but wonder if some of you as you see history repeating itself in your life, day in, week in, week out, that what you need to hear, say you need to stop, kneel, and pray. 
Because you've been attempting to fight the addiction through your own power and way. You've been trying to, to fix the relationship through what just seems like wisdom from our world. You've been attempting to change your, your behaviors of pattern of thought just through your own mechanisms. And, and it's not working. You're trapped in the cycle. And, and so what God wants you to hear today is that you need to stop, kneel, and pray. Years ago, I... Uh, uh, had a friend, uh, she was a brand new Christian, she was part of the ministry we had in Cedar Rapids, and uh, she, she makes this appointment, calls me, and is like, hey, Aaron, I need to see you. And so she comes in, and she says, um, I, I'm, I'm suffering really, really bad panic attacks. And, and my, my first thought is, all right, have you seen the doctor? And she's like, yeah, I've, I've gone to the doctor, I, I've got some medication, but it's, it's not helping. She, she's had a history of panic attacks, but she said that, you know, through her teens and her 20s, when she would have a panic attack, it would, it would last just like for a, a couple of minutes. These ones were way more intense. They were lasting 10, 20, 30, sometimes longer. She, she not only was having her heart race, she couldn't breathe. Her entire body was shutting down. And this was scaring her because she was a single mom with two little boys. She's like, what would happen if, if like something, like I have one of these panic attacks and something happens to them? I can't help them. And when that thought comes into her head, it makes the panic attack even worse. So my, my first thought is, well, have you gone back to the doctor? Like maybe you need a change in medication. But she kept talking. She says, Aaron, I... I can't help but think this is spiritual warfare. And I'm thinking, you're a brand new Christian. How do you know what spiritual warfare is? She'd just been talking the day before with a good friend of hers, and she began sharing about what was going on. And her friend looks at her and says, I think you're under spiritual attack. She had no idea what that was. And so her first thought is, well, then I need to meet with my pastor. And so she makes an appointment to come in and talk with me. And so I realized, okay, while there's some wisdom in getting counseling, there's wisdom in making sure, you know, your, your, your diet is good and, and you're sleeping right and you're exercising, I, I started to agree. I think there was more going on here than, than just medical, physical. So I needed to help her see Ephesians 6 and learn about the armor of God. Now, if you're not familiar with it, the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the, book, uh, to the church in Ephesus, starts describing this armor. He, he uses this Roman soldier and his gear and his outfit as an illustration of how God helps us in a spiritual battle. Paul writes that we, we wrestle not with just flesh and blood, that we are actually in, in life wrestling against these spirits, these principalities, these things that we can't see. So if you are a Christian, there's more going on than just that person saying something mean to you. There's more than just the stress at work. There's more than just that, that there is a spiritual battle that you are in. And God has given you armor. This armor is to protect you. Things like the helmet of salvation, shield of faith, breastplate of righteousness, belt of truth. He, he lists all these things. But as I was talking to my friend, I sensed she needed more than just hearing how she is protected. I sensed her saying, Aaron, I want to fight back. And in that list, there's one weapon, only one. And it's called a sword. The sword of the spirit. And Paul even defines what the sword of the Spirit is. He says it's the Word of God. It's the Scriptures. In your battle spiritually, if you're a Jesus follower, you can wield the Scriptures to fight against these things that are happening on a spiritual level. So I began to just give her some Scripture. 
We got some three and a half by five cards. She began writing them down. And she decided she was going to leave these cards with scripture in various places in her house. One, I think one was like in her bedroom, another in the bathroom, another in her living room. And was going to keep like one in her car. Well, two days later, I'm at an event. And I, I see her there. She comes running up to me. She goes, Aaron, it worked. That morning, she had felt a panic attack starting to come on. Heart starts racing. She suddenly is struggling to breathe. Her body starting to shut down. And she said it was all she could do to get over to the chair, to the couch, and grab that card. But when I had her write down these scripture verses, I told her, this isn't just reading the verse. This is you praying the verse. And that's exactly what she did. I think she used Philippians 4 on that very first attack. Philippians 4 tells us to not be anxious about anything, but in everything, in prayer and petition, with thanksgiving in our hearts, plead to God. Rejoice in him. For God can give us a, a, a sense of, of peace that surpasses understanding. And so that's what she did. She just began to pray through Philippians 4. And she said, Aaron, within seconds, the whole thing began to just go away. She says, I've never had a panic attack disappear that fast. And she has tears in her eyes. And finally, for once, history stopped repeating itself. Now, that doesn't mean that her battle was completely over. She continued to have some panic attacks. She would often have to reach for those cards. She even confessed to me one time, a panic attack began to come on because she'd had experience and they, they were going away so fast, she just began to read the card. And she said it got worse and worse and worse. And she suddenly realized she wasn't praying the card. She suddenly turned that Bible verse, trying to use it like a magical incantation. And she forgot that God was actually inviting her into it to surrender. But whenever she did, when she stopped, she kneeled, and she prayed, she saw God work. Some of you, that's what you need to hear today. God's invitation to just stop trying to do it on your own. To stop just giving in to that temptation. To stop just falling into those patterns. And instead to kneel down in surrender and to pray. But I also realized that for some of you that upon hearing that are really frustrated. You feel that it is unfair for me to say this. Because you follow Jesus and you have. You have stopped. You have knelt. You have prayed and history just continues to repeat. You're tired. You're worn out. You're questioning God. Maybe he isn't as good as they thought. Maybe I've done something wrong. Maybe he doesn't actually love me. Maybe he isn't that powerful. Maybe he doesn't even exist and the whole thing's made up. So you're wondering right now, so what do I do? Because <laughs> I've tried your method, Aaron, and it doesn't work. tell you what to do. You aren't going to like it, but you stop, you kneel, and you pray. It's called waiting upon the Lord. In Psalm 13, David says, how long, O Lord, must I wait? His enemies are against him. Nothing's going well. Nothing's going right. He is so frustrated. History just continues to repeat and yet at the end of the psalm, he says, but I will trust in your steadfast love. If you are a follower of Jesus, 
You know what Jesus did for you on a cross. So you can look to that. This isn't about fake it till you make it. This is about you putting your faith in what you know is true. So even though your feelings are saying, I want to do this, you do what you know is right. It isn't to say your emotions are worthless. God is an emotional God. He's given us these emotions. You just are not to be ruled by the emotions. You are to be ruled by the king. If you need some help, you need some encouragement, you need a reminder, all you have to do is look to Jesus. In Luke chapter 11, Jesus is having a conversation with some of the religious leaders. And he says to them, your ancestors, the religious leaders of the past, they repeated history over and over and over. They killed off the prophets. God would send a prophet to them. They didn't like hearing it. They'd kill him. Generation later, God would send another prophet. They didn't like it. They'd kill him. Another prophet over and over and over and over. And as he says this to them, it's a warning. He's basically saying, I know your heart and I know it's going to take place. You're going to do the exact same thing. You are going to kill me. And sure enough, they hand him over to the Romans where he is crucified. And they thought, we got rid of him. That is why you see Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night, just hours before he's arrested and, and, and uh, crucified, you see him weeping. You see him sweating blood. And you hear him say, Father, take this cup from me. That was his way of saying, God, can we do this some other way? Because I know the history. I, I as the son of God, was there when I saw the prophets killed. I know how difficult this is going to be. I know how painful this is going to be. And I'm going to do it totally alone. Can we do it some other way? Can you take this cup from me? But he didn't stop his prayer there. He said, but not my will yours. When Peter is in that room, when he stops, kneels, and pray, this is his way of saying, not my will, but yours. Now, he wanted her alive because he sensed that's what the people wanted. He saw how much she meant, but he also knows, I don't have the power to do this. Only God has the power over life and death. And so he stops and says, all right, God, not my will, but yours. I, I believe it's your will, God, that she rise. I believe that's why you brought me here. But I can't do this. Only you, God, can do this. His kneeling and praying is an act of surrender, inviting God to bring it. Too often we want the power without the prayer. I realize many of you have been praying. But if Jesus is saying, hey, could we do it some other way? Can you change it? Can you not let history repeat? But not my will but yours be done? How much more do you and I need to say, God, I don't like this. I want a different future. I want things to go differently, but not my will, but yours. It's hard. It's painful. But you have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes. God might be putting you in a place where for 14 years he's working so that he can draw you out and use you to do amazing, glorious things. Some of you, today's your breakthrough day. 
Today's your day where you're like Peter. You're going to pray, not my will, but yours. And you're going to have a sense. Something's going to change. But whether it happens in the next 14 seconds or it happens over the next 14 years, may you continue to wait upon the Lord. Continue to trust him. Not as a fake it till you make it, but to say, I know the reality. Jesus died on a cross and that's enough. And so because I can see God's heart for me through Christ, I can see God's power through the resurrection, I can see who he is and that he's with me and that he tore the curtain and has invited me in, I will continue to trust him and I will trust he will change history. So what we need to do right now is we need to stop. We need to kneel. We need to pray. So Heavenly Father, pray that right now you would help us to do just that. Lord, some of us in this room, we have not been stopping. We have not knelt in surrender. We've only said cursory prayers. We've, we've prayed about surface things, but we've not really opened up the gates of our heart to let the king of the glory come in. So right now, we do that, God. I, I pray you'd give us the courage to do this. This is sometimes scary to open our hearts up like this, especially to you, an unseen God. But even though we can't physically see you, we can spiritually know you. We see your love through Jesus. We see your power through the empty tomb. We know you are all wise. And so we surrender all of it to you, saying, not my will, but yours. And God, as we come before you, as we plead before you, we are asking that you would break the addiction that you would heal the relationship, that you would provide. You'd help us to not fall into those thought patterns that we would become more and more like Jesus. God, we, we want this victory. We, we want this breakthrough because we believe that as you do this, it is for your glory and it will be for our joy and freedom. And so that's why we ask but God, I also ask for strength. Strength for the person who just feels like they can't hold on any longer. They're tired. Strength for the person who thinks that the relationship will never change. Strength for the person who just feels that the job continues to elude them. Father, you, you tell us in Romans, that the same power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in your people. And so for those that are followers of you, may they tap into that power, this power that will give them the strength to stay, give them the strength to kneel, give them the strength to trust, to give them the strength to wait. Father, I also believe that your scriptures say that your Holy Spirit is the one who convicts us, who opens our eyes to you. So just as the people of Lydda and Joppa had a glimpse into your glory through the acts of Peter, I pray that today through this sermon, through these songs, that you'd open the eyes of someone and they would put their faith in you. That today would become their spiritual birthday. That today would be the day where they see some of their past, this repeated cycle of history end and they can begin something new. That just as you changed Saul, that you can change them and rather than, than them living for self, they can now live for you, knowing that is where they will experience freedom, that that will be where they experience joy, that is where they will experience a life so much farther beyond anything they could have hoped or imagined. 
So Lord, during this next time of, of song, this next time of communion, this time of prayer, I pray you would hear us as we continue to kneel, as we continue to surrender, as we continue to say, not my will, but yours be done. And we pray and ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, we want to uh, celebrate communion, the remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus by partaking together. Uh, Riverwood family, I'd like to just apologize. There's a beauty about us partaking as a church, and we haven't done it in quite a while. And so I'm going to invite the ushers to pass the elements. As they pass the, the uh, cups, uh, we're going to sing a song. And then after uh, a verse, we're going to then open it up and we'll take the bread together. We'll sing another verse. Then we'll open it up, take the, the juice together, and then we'll pray. So let us do this now in remembrance of him.